HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that Wisconsin wins more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. (laughs) Thanks, Dave. That always gives you a little shot in the arm. This is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. And we are now on episode five of my series on the dairy industry, trying to unravel what is going on with milk. Um, And so to that end, I have invited a wonderful, like really a remarkable uh, expert for your um, erudition. Uh, His name is Andrew W. Novakovich. Um, He is the E.V. Baker Professor of Agricultural Economics and the Director of the Land Grant Programs at the Charles Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management and at Cornell S.C. Johnson College of Businesses, College of Agriculture and Life Sciences, all part of Cornell University. And he is going to tell us exactly what is going on with the economics of the dairy industry, because I just don't understand it. So um, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming. Andy, can I call you Andy, or do I need to call you um, Doc or, or Prof? Hey, Andy, Andy works great. Thank Andy you works very much. great. <laughs> and, and, and did you want to add anything to your extraordinarily um, impressive CV there? Like, I, I really just read <laughs> yeah. your titles off. <laughs> yeah, no, my goodness, you uh, you you hit all the highlights for sure, oh, okay. and all the titles and names. I, I feel well fed. Well, we didn't actually mention the fact that um, that you were also a featured uh, player in the series, the Netflix series Rotten, um, in the episode that they did on the dairy industry. We're going to talk about that in a second. But first, can you just give us kind, of, you know, give the listeners sort of a thumbnail of what you are doing at Cornell? Like where where you know where are your primary focuses? Foci, foci, foci. Foci. Sure, sure. So uh, I, I grew up in uh, Wisconsin, apparently one of your sponsors, and have Yay. both uh, dairy farming and cheese making in my family bloodline. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just couldn't think of anything I wanted to do more uh, besides being an economist who focuses on dairy issues. 
Cool. Uh, my focus is after milk is produced. So I'm interested in what happens to milk after it mm-hmm. leaves the farm, goes through the supply chain, uh, gets made into dairy foods, and ultimately is consumed or exported or what have you. And, of course, dairy being what it is, a lot of that involves policy work. Yeah. And that's what we want to delve into deeply today. So for starters, as I mentioned at the top, we, um, I saw you in that rotten episode, and I must say you were fantastic. I mean, the whole, the, the whole show, like your part, the first half of it, I guess, was, was really um, informative and interesting, and, and it focused on a conventional dairy farm or two. Um, and then it, it sort of veered off bizarrely into raw milk, as if that is like a major part of the dairy industry. And of course, I think most of us know that it isn't. And indeed, I, I discourage everyone uh, within earshot to not drink raw milk because I think it's basically, you know, a loaded gun. Um, But I know there are people who swear by it. In any case, um, you were fantastic in that episode. And so um, can you talk about a little bit about the what you see as the primary causes for the um, these profound financial losses in conventional dairy farming in the last, say, 30 years? I know that's a big question, but I know you can handle it. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's certainly true that uh, the industry has been going through changes, pretty dramatic changes, uh, for decades and decades. I mean, in some ways, uh, ever since the end of the Great Depression, certainly since really? the end of uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of that is paralleled by all kinds of stuff that we see throughout the American economy. We've got advances in technology. We've got advances in how businesses are management. Uh, we're, you know, across the board, uh, kind of shedding labor in favor of uh, more technologically advanced, uh, capital-intensive, larger-scale businesses. Right. And I don't know that dairy is any more or or much less a part of that than uh, any other part uh, of uh, sort of the manufacturing components of of the U.S. economy. Uh, I think where where uh, Agriculture maybe gets a little more traction. Is these are these are fundamentally family businesses, and you know our awareness of them is enhanced by the fact that you drive past farms for miles and miles, not just one factory. Uh, and these are people who are in our churches and in our schools and communities, and and uh, it becomes pretty obvious when when that starts to change. Uh, and I think uh, in the last couple of years, we've been increasingly sensitive about it. Uh, I'm not sure that really the last couple of years is so dramatically different from what it's been. But uh, there's this sense of frustration that I think is heightened by the fact that whereas we used to have public programs that would try to help, it doesn't feel like uh, the federal government is providing much help these days. Yes, I, I would agree. I would agree with that, especially when you're talking about smaller. Um, well, <clears throat> you know, one thing that I um, well, we can talk about this in a second, but just to touch on it, I mean, the thing that has struck me, I'm I'm more of a meat, you know, person. I'm a meat geek. I'm a meat head. Um, I wrote a book about the meat industry around the world, and I'm you know I've really studied it for the last ten years, and I'm totally struck by the parallels between what has happened in the meat industry in terms of consolidation and monopolization. And it very much seems like um, that is uh, a, a trend in uh, dairy as well, in terms of um, the smaller farmers being squeezed uh, out by low prices and and um, and these efficiencies that you're talking about, the technological advances and so forth, um, creating you know these big mega farms where um, the scale is so great that they can actually... Um, 
you know, keep those prices really low. Um, so we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that because, because what strikes me is that the big dairy sector seems to be doing fine, even though the prices are so depressed. Um, <clears throat> but everybody else is suffering. So is that, is it, is it sort of the same thing? It's, it's this, it's this huge uh, monopolization of dairy and, and then the smaller farmers are just basically being squeezed out. Is that kind of what you think is going on? Well, there definitely are some similarities with other livestock sectors, uh, but I would say dairy is a couple of steps behind mm. what we've seen in livestock. I mean, the, the spearhead clearly was poultry, yeah. both in terms of poultry meat as well as eggs. And, you know, that has become an operation where basically the farmer is providing labor to uh, a, a, a processor who really controls the supply chain. Yeah, And, you know, there's examples of smaller scale um, uh, people in the poultry business. But, uh, you know, when we go in a grocery store, mostly what we're seeing is, is a very vertically integrated uh, situation. Uh, uh, the pork industry started moving down that path uh, yep. and is not exactly in that spot, but pretty close. Oh, yeah. Uh, beef is a little different. The, the cow-calf operation continues to be more of a family business. The finishing operation is very definitely in that in that uh, packer-controlled uh, climate. With dairy, you don't really have the vertical integration thing. It's not that big dairy companies, the big, big, big dairy processors, are controlling the supply chain. It's really more integral to what's happening at the farm sector. And, you know, in some ways, it's a classic American story. Uh, you know, some people are really good at a thing, and when they're really good at a thing, they have a tendency to get bigger. Right. And, uh, you know, we've seen that in spades. Uh, you know, nobody uh, who's running a big farm, uh, you know, was given some special gift by a Saudi Arabian prince. <laughs> they or their father or their grandfather <laughs> built that operation. Yeah. And they have a lot of pride. And they, they think of themselves as being a family business. Now, it might be two brothers and a cousin and a couple of kids and uh, but nevertheless, they, they see themselves as being uh, a family business also. Uh, what's, what's striking is, is we've reached a point now where the, it feels like the scales have kind of shifted. Uh, we've got about 40,000 dairy farmers in the U.S., a little bit more, mm -hmm. and there's maybe 3,000 of them that produce half of the milk supply. Right. Uh, if, if you look at, you know, that means there's 37,000, 38,000 that are more modest-sized farms that most of us would look at and think is, you know, kind of like what we thought about with the dairy farm. Right. But uh, they, uh, they're they only producing, uh, you know, about half the milk. And, you know, this, this transition has been a long time in the making, and it doesn't really seem like it's nearing any, you know, stopping. Uh, mm -hmm. This is just the way we're going to continue. Hmm. Interesting. Now, what used to happen in the dairy market was um, that there were price floors uh, built into the market. Like, in other words, there was no, you, you couldn't go below a certain, you were guaranteed a certain price for your fluid milk. What what has changed in that? What, hap what happened to those prices? <laughs> like, why are they below the cost of production now? Yeah, so that that's a kind of an interesting policy story, and in some ways a sobering story for any kind of policy that we might generate. Uh, these programs were designed with the idea that farmers, dairy farmers, have a hard time 
getting a good deal in the marketplace, that it's difficult for them to uh, kind of counter the market power, the market advantage of the people who buy milk. Right. Uh, and, you know, this uh, relates to the fact that milk is harvested twice a day. It's sold once a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's highly perishable. A dairy farmer doesn't have a hell of a lot of time to shop around for a better deal. Mm-hmm. And so uh, dairy farmers, more than any other part of agriculture, rely on cooperatives, meaning they work together to market their milk collectively yeah. uh, as a way to to more efficiently deal with that. And federal and state governments have been sympathetic to saying, how can we help you out? And there's a couple ways that happens, but one of them, historically, that occurred in the middle of the 20th century, but kind of fell apart around 1990, was this program that created a floor uh, underneath the price of milk. And that floor was based on kind of a subjective notion of what a fair price might be. Mm -hmm. Typically, the Secretary of Agriculture had a little leeway uh, to be more aggressive or less aggressive. But the punchline is, in the late 1970s, when the U.S. was experiencing rampant inflation that nobody who is uh, old enough to remember couldn't even imagine, Mm -hmm. we got a little carried away with our, our price supports on milk. And we ended up creating... Uh, a, a gigantic surplus, 12% of the U.S. milk supply, did not have a commercial home. Uh, in $1980, we spent $2 billion a year, three years in a row, buying up surplus dairy products that nobody else wanted. And it took us about 10 years to get that cat out of the tree. And at the end of that, <laughs> that program became toxic. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it still exists on the books. But we can't afford to use it anymore. Right. And, and part of the reason for that also is in 1996, we opened the door to trade. And so now right. if we tried to use that program, we'd end up uh, supporting the price in the world, not just the U.S. And that, that becomes obviously uh, ridiculously too expensive and so becomes infeasible. So that program fell apart. We, we don't do that anymore. Right. Um, so, so that what you just referred to was the WTO, the World Trade Organization, um, in 1996. You know, when we started marketing more of our milk products uh, abroad or to other countries, is that what you're talking about? Okay. Um, yeah. So we 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 had a variety of, of agreements following World War II, mm-hmm. and uh, the one that gave us the 1996 agreement was the one where we finally really opened the door on agriculture and dairy in particular. Mm-hmm. Prior to that. We had a very, very tight system of controls, and the amount of trade either going out or coming in was minimal. Right. And we do not import a lot of dairy product, do we? Uh, Don't no. We export uh, most most of, of our imports are uh, uh, specialty cheeses. Think of it as sort of right. European-style cheeses, yep. cheeses that we don't make so much of, yeah. uh, high-value stuff. It adds up to, oh, 4%, give or take, of our total Sales comes from abroad in the form of those kinds of imports. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and so um, I'm going to backtrack for a second just to talk about milk prices again. So um, after that price support program sort of went away, um, <clears throat> for obvious reasons, as you've just explained, what who sets dairy prices now? Like how how do farmers? I mean, can they? You know, at fifth, what is it like fifteen bucks a hundred weight now? Um, can it go lower than that even? 
because oh, yeah. of overproduction? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it, can, it can go anywhere from zero to 100. Uh, think of it a little bit like uh, the interest rate on your credit card. Okay. Well, where the heck does that number come from? I don't well, know. Well, <laughs> if, if you kind of poke around a little bit, uh, it's definitely influenced by the marketplace. When, when uh, interest rates are low, uh, your credit card rates are going to be low. It's going to reflect what's happening in the marketplace. Uh, when interest rates bubble up, uh, your credit card rates are going to bubble up. Uh, So basic supply and demand on money, if you will, uh, has a big influence on interest rates in general, including what Mm -hmm. we pay for our mortgage or what we pay for our credit card. But there's also some kind of rules and some conventions, and there's certain relationships that have to be respected, and and uh, banks they can't just kind of willy-nilly pull any real old rate out if they if there's a feeling that it's inconsistent with the marketplace. Milk prices are much the same way. Uh, there is a regulatory structure that basically is like having the umpire out in the field, and he's watching the players play. And as long as they're playing by the rules, it's okay, fine, go ahead. But there are points at which they'll come in and say, okay, you know, you you've, you you're out of bounds now. Mm-hmm. Dairy prices are regulated, but they're not set by the government in some subjective way. Dairy prices reflect market conditions really in the world. Um, mm-hmm. they, they follow the price of butter. They follow the price of cheddar cheese. They follow the price of nonfat dry milk. They follow the price of dry whey, which is a byproduct from cheese making. And those prices are pretty heavily influenced, not just by what happens in the U.S., but what happens um, uh, worldwide. And when markets are long, those prices go down. When markets are tight, those prices go up. And we've been in a prolonged period of kind of low markets. Uh, and yeah. uh, it's, it's not just reflecting what happens in the U.S. It's really reflecting worldwide conditions. And the government rules don't really prevent that from happening. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about because um, we're, ta- we're we're talking about commodities and the futures trading, uh, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and can you talk a little bit about the connection between um, the commodity prices that are set under in those markets um, and how that connects to sort of the price for feed um, and you know the other sort of th- that sort of because that's also something that's traded on the futures market. I'm way out of my depth here, so you'll have to forgive me for being a little bit incoherent. But but as I understand it, like the cost of feed is often determined essentially by the Chicago Mercantile Exchange and what's happening in the commodities market. And I imagine that the cost of a lot of these milk and milk products um, are also traded globally on commodity markets. So can you, can you sort of explain that a little bit, like how that, because you just alluded to sort of the world impact of pricing. Yeah. So there's, there's a couple aspects to um, commodity markets on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Uh, one of the things I'm going to say at the outset is there are some people who talk about the Chicago Mercantile Exchange like it's some nefarious uh, den of thieves that you know, <laughs> simply exists to torment farmers. I'm not one of those guys. Okay. But my perspective I on, might be, though. on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange <laughs> is like this. First, there's two, two kinds of transactions that happen, futures markets and spot markets. Futures mm. markets are people saying, if I sold corn next September, what would you pay for me? Or if I bought corn, what would you sell it for me? Right. And these are buyers and sellers that are trying to establish uh, an expected future value that can be useful for either a buyer or seller 
in terms of being able to, to put together a budget and a business plan. They can so-called lock in a price. Right. The CME also has spot markets, which means it's for sale today. I can go to the CME for a wide variety of commodities, precious metals, pork bellies, frozen concentrated orange juice, all kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. and say, um, I want to sell this at a, you know, what kind of price? Just like you sell a buy or sell a stock on the stock market. Sure. Uh, in the dairy industry is an industry that likes to have a hint as to what the price is. So if I if I'm a company, I don't I don't have to pay any attention to the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. If I'm a company and I'm selling cheese and I get a call from a uh, a potential buyer and they say, "Hey, we want to buy some cheese," I can tell them whatever price I want. But that buyer or or the seller kind of wants to know if they're in the ballpark. They kind of want to know is the market moving up, is the market moving down? And it's very very common to use the Chicago Mercantile Exchange spot market price as a benchmark, as an indicator. Uh-huh. And in fact, a lot of contracts that are written for a sale over, say, the next month or two months or six months will say, you agree to pay the Chicago Mercantile Exchange price for 40-pound block cheddar cheese plus two cents or minus one cent or some fixed uh, number that you, you agree on. And what you're basically saying is, I'm selling a product that I know is either worth more or discounted worth less than the standard product on Chicago, but I'm going to let the Chicago market determine the ups and downs. That's fair to both the buyer and to the seller. Um, Mm. Nobody says you have to do that, but the industry has had that system uh, for decades because it feels reasonable to a lot of people. Uh, When you start selling... Uh, fancier cheeses like a brie or a camembert or uh, something that's you know not a commodity cheese, then that pricing breaks away. But if you're selling yeah. cheddar or mozzarella or even something like an ordinary Swiss cheese, chances are pretty good you're pricing on the exchange. Uh, some people, uh, when they hear that, uh, uh, get suspicious that maybe this market is subject to some manipulation. I was just going to say in that. In fact, there, there have been uh, accusations of that. Yes. And, you know, uh, I, I suppose we could say any anything can be subject to some kind of manipulation. But the fact of the matter is that market is open to buyers and sellers. And it doesn't, you don't even have to uh, uh, actually trade any commodity to move the price. So if a buyer comes in, and offers a price uh, that is really, really low and pushes the market down, it's pretty easy for a seller to come back and say, well, that's nuts. This doesn't make any sense, and and take an action that moves the price up. So I I think over the long haul, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange does a pretty good job of reflecting supply and demand economics between buyers and sellers. USDA does not use the Chicago prices in uh-huh. any of its pricing regulation. It uses audited transaction prices that it gets once a month by a mandatory survey of dairy processors. Mm. So uh, if they, if those processors use the Chicago price, okay, there's going to be a correlation. But in point of fact, USDA doesn't actually use the Chicago prices directly. It uses audited transaction prices. Hmm. So, <clears throat> but that seems to be, I mean... <laughs> Is it just oversupply that has 
caused conventional dairy to sort of collapse in price? Is that is it really because we don't regulate supply and demand the way, say, the Canadians do, um, that we are so, seeing dairy farmers, you know, literally blowing their brains out right, left, and center? I mean, so I, there, there, there are two things. Um, one is price movements up and down always reflect the combination of production and consumption. Yeah. So, you know, underconsumption is the flip side of oversupply, and you know, it's not always real obvious which which is the one that's the correct way of describing what's going on. The second thing is one of the real challenges in dairy is uh, milking cows is a little bit like steering an oil tanker. Uh, if you want to turn left, you've got to start turning way, way ahead of where it is you actually want to be left of. And the dairy industry is like that. It, it gets a price signal. price of corn goes up. Right. And common economic logic would say, well, if the cost of an input, a big important input goes up, I should produce less of this product. That's the rational thing to do. Well, if you're milking cows, that's not so straightforward. That's not right. so easy to do. And so it becomes like a milk tanker. Yeah, eventually, if it goes on long enough, I'll respond, but I am not going to turn uh, my milking operation on a dime, uh, in part because I, I can't, and in part because I want to be sure that this thing that's happening uh, is going to be around long enough to make it worthwhile for me to you know, upset what I'm doing. Uh, these are called delays or lags. Yeah. And uh, that's the reason why we often see these prolonged periods of low prices and also from time to time prolonged periods of high prices because it just takes a while for the industry to either back off on production or gear up on production. Right, right. Uh, we've, been a, we've been in a period of kind of prolonged low prices, and I think uh, a lot of farmers have just said, yeah, it sucks. I don't like it, but uh, boy, I I'm not going to cut back because it's kind of all or nothing. I mean, you're basically trying to decide: Do you want to be a dairy farmer? Okay, if you do, uh, you're going to have to hang in there and just ride it out. Right, right. Because I mean, to cut back means essentially that you have to get rid of part of your herd. I mean, actually, that was a that was a that was a feature in the in that rotten episode where the family that is profiled, they ended up selling off a lot of their cattle, if not all of them at a certain point. And then being because of the surge in prices around 2014, they were able to buy some back. Isn't that, was that, wasn't that what happened in that? So Yeah, and there are some people that, that do that. That's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a tough proposition because if you've got a barn yeah. that's designed for 100 cows, you know, common sense sort of says the way to minimize your fixed cost is to have 100 cows in there. In fact, sure. a lot of guys will have 110. Mm-hmm. And if if you put 50 cows in that 100-cow barn, it isn't going to change your mortgage payments. It right. isn't going to change your loans on uh, uh, equipment that you bought or feed that you purchased. And so uh, sometimes it doesn't make sense to run at less than full capacity. Uh, it depends a lot on what your fixed costs are relative to your variable costs. Right. Uh, but uh, yeah, at some point, uh, some people definitely will say, uh, you know, I'm I'm losing money. I'm going to get rid of my least productive cows. Right. And uh, you know, try to trim my losses. Mm-hmm. 
and sell them into the into the conventional or the commodity beef market. Essentially, is where that happens, where that goes, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, <clears throat> it's not, you know you could conceivably sell it uh, for a dairy cow, but you know if you're getting rid of dairy cows, probably the market for dairy cows is not that great. So yes. yeah, a lot of these end up being used for beef. Absolutely. Um, we're going to take a short break. Please do not go away. Um, we're going to have a sponsor drop now, and then we'll be right back with, uh, with uh, Professor Andrew Novakovich. I got that right. And um, uh, we're going to talk more about the economics of the dairy industry. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. What do you think of when you hear Wisconsin Cheese? For me, I think cheese curds. Delicious, fresh and squeaky cheese curds. Or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese, the farmstead cheese company behind Pleasant Ridge Reserve. I think of delicious, stinky Limburger and its long storied history. I think of Dunbarton Blue, made by master cheesemaker Chris Raleigh. I think of Ross Grand Cru Sirchois, which was named 2016's World Championship Cheese, and Satori's Black Pepper Bella Vitano, the 2017 U.S. Championship Cheese. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese with lush grasslands and a glacial water supply that produce the very best milk. Fourth-generation cheesemakers combine old-world tradition with new ideas and the highest standards to make innovative cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit wisconsincheese.com. This is a What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. My guest today is Professor Andrew Novakovich uh, from Cornell University. He's helping us understand the economic um, piece of the dairy puzzle. I guess it's really all about economics, but he really seems to have his finger on the pulse. Um, Andy, so let's let's go back for a second to talk about trade, and because we've been talking about supply and demand, and tr- you know trying to balance that out, and and riding out the wave of oversupply, which is what we have now, and thus very low prices. <clears throat> but don't we export a ton of milk? and milk powder? And if so, why doesn't that make up the shortfall in terms of, you know, like, doesn't that sort of boost up the the demand um, here so that prices could go up? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm still struggling with this. I don't, I don't quite understand. It's like we have this world market, and yet somehow dairy farmers are still not making money. What, what's happening there? Well, you know, it, uh, we got a bigger cake, but we don't have any more frosting. <laughs> the the growth nice one. in exports, <laughs> the growth in exports uh, that started uh, with the uh, opening of of agriculture in 1996 with the WTO agreements uh, allowed us to develop some new customers. It, it also right. opened the door in our direction; uh, people could come and sell to us and. Um, when the agreement was first initially uh, concluded, we imports actually increased faster than exports did. Uh-huh. But eventually, we got to the point where we're a pretty potent force in world markets. Uh, when we first got started, 
we could basically sell cheap commodities. And we had a lot of them, and if we offered them at a discount, we could move a lot of product, but we didn't make a lot of money doing it. Mm. Uh, we're getting better, and we're getting to the point now where we're doing more value-added products. Uh, we're we're um, more sophisticated traders. We have a better reputation for the products that we produce. I mean, Americans are very proud of their dairy products, but when you go to a foreign country and they've not purchased them before, you know, they're going to make their own evaluation. And it takes a while to establish uh, a relationship, both in terms of the quality of the product as well as in the, the quality of the supplier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're getting there. We're, we're the second largest country in terms of exporting. Uh, the European Union as a group is bigger than us, but even with the European Union in there, we still come in as number three. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's the good news. And, and we export somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of the milk that we produce uh, is sold to a foreign customer. So that's made the pie bigger. But uh, that doesn't necessarily make everybody more profitable. Uh if if everybody wanted to buy a real high value added product, uh, uh, maybe we would see uh, a sense of greater profitability. But a lot of the commodities, a lot of the product that's that's bought and sold in the world, is bought by relatively poorer countries who are looking for a good quality food product at a low price, and they tend to buy. Uh, uh, milk powders, milk mm-hmm. proteins, things yeah. that you mix with water. You can mix them into uh, uh, other prepared foods uh, that provide a good source of protein, but uh, it's not necessarily a product that you sell at a premium price. Hmm. Uh, if we didn't have uh, these export markets, we'd have you know somewhere between 10 and 15% fewer uh, um, um, farms less milk produced. Right. So it's allowed the industry to maintain a size and even grow. Uh, total volume has definitely grown. Uh, but it, that's a different issue than profitability. Yeah, totally. And, and, then, and then just on the back of that, let's talk a little bit for a second about NAFTA. Because, you know, for instance, if, if uh, this administration ends up changing our relationship to um, our partners, Canada and Mexico, um, what do you think could conceivably be the impact on American dairy farmers if, for example, I don't know, we put, uh, you know, price controls or we put um, uh, tariffs or or we limit the supply that is able to be imported or something like that. What would what would happen then? Would that be good so or bad if, or indifferent? If we, um, if we, um, um, Terminate NAFTA if we do something that's, you know, at least in that direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the implications for dairy trade with Canada are pretty small. Okay. Uh, there's very little trade between the two countries. Sometimes we're a net exporter. There's been years when they've been a net exporter. But the volume is so small you can hardly see it on a graph. Wow. Uh, there would be implications for some companies, especially some companies on the border, that have developed some trade relationships, but the industry would hardly know the difference. I mean, I oh. think it would be kind of tragic to to do that with our with our best friend in the world and our best yeah, uh, right. economic ally. But the fact of the matter is, trade in dairy products is pretty small in both directions. Interesting. 
trade with Mexico is an entirely different issue. Uh, they are our biggest single customer for dairy products. Whoa. Uh, we obviously have uh, a, 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 an advantage in that we can make an international transaction by driving a truck over the border. Right. Uh, nobody else, no other dairy exporter can do that. But the reality is Mexico is already buying dairy products from other people. They're diversifying their sources mm-hmm. because they don't want to be caught uh, empty-handed. And they're a little annoyed at the president of the United States for giving them a hard time yeah. and sort of saying, you know, you're not as indispensable as you think. And right. Europeans are very happy to fill in the gap. New <laughs> yeah. Zealand is very happy to fill in the gap. We have a new Trans-Pacific Agreement that now excludes the United States. That's right. Mexico is in this agreement. Is that right? New Zealand is mm-hmm. in this agreement. Yeah. Australia is in this agreement. Right. So now Mexico is going to have a preferential agreement with New Zealand and Australia, as well as the other uh, countries in the new Trans-Pacific Partnership. Yeah. And we're going to be on the outside looking in. So even without dramatically changing NAFTA, we've already damaged our relationship uh, with Mexico. This means that there's going to be American dairy companies that have to find somewhere else to go with their milk or their dairy product. Right. They probably will, but they're going to have to offer it at a lower price. That means they're going to make less money selling this product to Indonesia or Malaysia or Vietnam or, or China, uh, Libya or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, it's, it's not going to be uh, to their benefit as a company and, and ultimately not to any benefit of U.S. dairy farmers. On the contrary, in fact. Um, it would, <laughs> I, I think we could safely say it would be disastrous <laughs> for, um, for American small-scale dairy farms. Um, I want to talk for just a second about the Margin Protection Program, which I just learned about recently. Um, and so that was something that uh, the last Farm Bill created. It was, it's kind of an insurance program. And, and according to um, the uh, Wichita, Kansas newspaper, the article that I read about this, dairy farmers apparently have contributed $100 million in premiums to this program, and yet only $12 million has been paid out um, to sort of counter the, the problems with the pricing of dairy right now, which is below the cost of production. So what, what, what is happening with that program? Why isn't it working the way it's supposed to? Why are dairy farmers well, not getting a, the money that they put into this? There's a couple this? of reasons. Uh, the old price support program that we spoke about yeah. uh, was a program that tried to hold up the price of milk. So farmers got money uh, by this action of kind of buying up surplus products. And, of course, if you're holding up the price of milk, that means everybody is paying more for dairy products, consumers included. Sure. Uh, and so most of the money that went to dairy farmers in the form of higher prices than they otherwise would have had actually came out of consumer pockets. Right. When that program became um, no longer feasible, we switched to uh, a form of, of subsidy that's called an income subsidy as opposed to a price support. Okay. So in the case of an income subsidy, it's, it's kind of like food stamps or welfare sure. program. Uh, the federal government says, oh, uh, a, a condition exists where you're not getting paid enough. We'll give you a check. And you get a check in the mail, so it's United States Treasury, and it's based on whatever rules are in place to determine how big that check should be. And you get the cash out check, and it's, you know, hopefully it helps you out. 
We actually started doing that in 2000 and had a program in place that was called the Milk Income Loss Contract. And that program seemed to work reasonably well until we got six, $7 corn when the whole mm-hmm. ethanol thing kind of uh, got out of control. Mm-hmm. And the industry said, wow, we never anticipated uh, uh, corn prices and, mm-hmm. and other feed prices uh, going to this kind of height. So this old program, the program that we have, this milk income loss contract, really isn't helping us out. We're, we're losing money, but this program's not triggering in. And so uh, a new program was proposed that was based on looking at the difference between the price of milk and the cost of feed. So that's why it's called margin protection. The margin you're talking about is the difference between that cost of feed and the price of milk. And uh, the idea was Mm. if that margin gets uh, too narrow, then we'll give you a supplement. We'll give you a U.S. Treasury check to help get you through to when things take care of themselves. Well, the problem or the challenge when you have income subsidies is all of the cost is borne by the federal government. There is no help in the form of prices in the marketplace. And on top of that, for a variety of reasons, there wasn't much money available for dairy. Hmm. Uh, The agriculture committees that generate these rules have to operate in the budget. And if they want to take away money from the soybean industry and give it to the dairy industry, they can do that. But as you can imagine, the soybean people aren't too happy about that. And they had a small budget. They had a small allowance for dairy. So they they had this idea for building this nice car that would take the dairy industry down the road, but they had no gas to put in the tank. Okay. And so they said, oh, boy, what are we going to do? How can we deal with this? And they said, well, let's, let's model this after an insurance product. So if a dairy farmer wants higher levels of coverage, they have to pay some money. Right. You know, if you want a $1,000 deductible, you get it kind of cheap. You want a $500 deductible? Well, you have to pay a little bit more. That was the concept. Right, right, right. This, this was the first time that dairy farmers had to pay a fee in order to access the benefit of a program. And when the analysis was done on, you know, would this make sense, as we almost always do, we look backwards and we said, if this program would have been in place in the last 10 years, how would it have worked? And the numbers looked pretty reasonable. There were some years you didn't get a payment, and none of the years you got a big payment. But over time, uh, dairy farmers benefited from this program. Well, unfortunately, life moves forwards, not backwards. (laughs) And what we've discovered since 2015 is that farmers are paying premiums, but they're not getting big benefits. Uh, And it's a, a little bit of a story, but what we're discovering is the problem now isn't the price of feed, but rather other costs that aren't included in the program. Mm. Also, you know, in, in when we had the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, yeah. that was so dramatic, so cataclysmic, so catastrophic that it would have triggered big payments. Well, we don't have that kind of cataclysm now. Now we have what I call the long scrape. Mm. And in the long scrape scenario, you don't get this big payment, but over time, you're worn out. You just you run out of reserves. Your bank is, is, is can't help you anymore. 
your feed dealer says, look, you haven't paid me in a year. I can't do this anymore. And this is what's starting to come to home, home to roost. And this program really wasn't designed for the long scrape. Huh. Uh, and, and so dairy farmers uh, have basically abandoned this program and said, this isn't working. This, this, this is not being helpful. I should have gotten help, and I didn't get it. Uh, and as you said, uh, they paid $100 million in fees, and they got $12 million back in terms of help, which means they would have been better off outside the program. Yes. Uh, in, in, the, in the last budget deal that just came out with all the drama of immigration and building a wall and <laughs> shutting down the government, yeah. we now have um, changes to this program, which I think will be pretty advantageous for smaller scale farms kind of average size farms and, and smaller. Um, and farmers will have an opportunity to change their enrollment decision for 2018. And I, I think we'll probably see more farmers uh, signing up for this program and the program being a little bit more helpful. But we're, we're just starting to unpack uh, how that's going to work. Amazing. Well, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up here, even though I have like 10 more questions for you, but I'm kind of running out of time. And usually people don't really listen beyond about 30 minutes, quite honestly. So <laughs> well, I think we're going to have to do a repeat uh, sometime cool. in the future, because uh, this has just been so interesting and so helpful. Um, so I want to thank you very much. Um, this is your moment to promote yourself shamelessly. Uh, if you have any publications or if there's something you want listeners to know, uh, or how they can learn more about um, some of the stuff we've been talking about today, um, go ahead and, and shout it out. Yeah, well, I would uh, be delighted if uh, folks want to find out a little bit more uh, about what's going on in the industry and in our program in particular, uh, www.dairymarkets.org mm-hmm. is our website. Great. And uh, I would also say uh, there is tons of really great information on the USDA website. Uh, poke around. You can find data. You can find explanations. You can find research. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I think it's a it's a great place uh, to look for uh, some good information. Um, thank you so much, Gary. Really, I mean, Andy, I really appreciate your Gary. What am I thinking? Um, thank you very much. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Thank you very much. It really was a pleasure to talk to you. I I learned a lot. It's going to take me a little while to process this, but um, yeah, I really appreciate it. So, um, and thanks to Wisconsin Cheese for supporting this program and this radio station. We'll see you next week with another great show. And um, feel free to write in um, questions about dairy industry issues uh, or consolidation in the end of, you know, agricultural industries altogether, um, because we're going to keep on um, talking about that in the next few months, Um, not just dairy, but we're going to move forward into other aspects of ag uh, that have to do with some of the issues that are facing the dairy industry and that are seem to be endemic across across the board. So um, stay tuned for those. Um, thanks for listening, folks. See you t- next time. Have a good week. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. 
and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.